0: Thank you. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spirit Talk. And today, uh, we are welcoming Mr. Brent Sass to the program. Brent is uh, a competitive dog musher and a wilderness guide. He's also the owner-operator of Wild and Free Mushing. And uh, his team and his dogs and himself have won the Yukon Quest in 2015, 2019, and 2020. Uh, Brent, it is awesome to have you on here.
1: Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Appreciate having me.
0: And so... A lot is when people watch this show, they're always kinda of wonder why I have certain guests on here. And obviously I've had anyone from law enforcement to martial arts to actors to authors, motivational speakers, fitness people. And they're gonna be like, Well, why do you have Brent on here? Like, yes, it's super fascinating. There's not a lot of people in the world to do this or even the just the survival aspect of it. And I go, Well, growing up, um, when I was a kid in first and second grade, I had this teacher, Mrs. Stacy, who she she made us pick a, a state to learn about it. So I chose Alaska and I went down this rabbit hole. Um, this is back when PBS and stuff was actually really cool with informational programs. And I learned about the Iditarod, Alaska, and all this stuff. And I've always just kind of been fascinated growing up. And then as you get older, I start reading Jack London books, learning about these men and people who live in the wilderness with their dogs and I uh Iron Will, White Fang, all this stuff about humans and their dogs and this acts, this crazy stuff they do. And I just I've always loved it. And I've always wished I could go see the watch the Iditarod like he can do a NASCAR race or something like that. And so I reached out to you, uh just doing some research about everything. And again, Brent, it's uh Grand Dave out here.
1: Yeah, well, appreciate it. I can always really shed shed a little light on that lifestyle for you.
0: And so I know you—you you weren't born in Alaska, but you ended up going out there for skiing, um, and then at the the sports for that type of stuff. But what was the actual thing that you saw? Was it a uh, a busher in action, a bunch of dogs? And how did you kind of make that parlay into the uh, the what you do now?
1: Well, you know, the the dream of of going to Alaska was born when I was like five years old, literally. Uh, Um, I was uh, visiting my grandma and they had just got back from a cruise from Alaska and I you know didn't have any idea what Alaska was or anything like that and I just saw pictures of mountains and rivers and and I told my parents right there and then that I was going to move to Alaska. And, and live, live in a cabin in the woods. And, uh, and so that dream never died. And, and, uh, all the way till when I was 18 and I decided that I was going to apply to one school when I was going to leave, leave home and it was going to be UAF. And that was going to be my ticket to Alaska. I didn't have any, any plans past that. It was like, if I can get into UAF, then my parents can't stop me from going to Alaska. And, uh, and that's what I did. And I was a skier and I, and I skied on the ski team and, and literally, I was in Alaska for a couple of years, you know, skiing the ski team and going to school and, and uh, just kind of starting my Alaska life. And, And one day a dog team came by at my feet and I was out skiing on the trails and this dog team came by and I was like a light bulb went off in my head. You know, I had been, I had been watching the sport a little bit. I had been exposed to it a little bit. i went to a start of a quest. This was a couple of years into my stay in Alaska, but I never really got the, the, the feeling I got when that team came right by me on the trail and I just said, I want to do that. And uh, from that day forth, I started, you know, I, I kind of chased that musher down and decided I wanted to, I wanted to have him. And, and, and uh, I, and I went and talked to him a couple days later and he, uh, he was like, I was like, I want to be a musher. I was just young, you know, 18 year old, 19 year old kid. And this guy looked at me, kind of funny. And he was just bushy, old, old, older Alaskan guy, kind of a typical Alaska looking guy. And, and he said, come back in a week. And I came back in a week and he handed me a puppy and he said, here's your first puppy. You're a, you're a dog musher now. <laughs> and, and that's how it all began. And that I named that dog silver. And he, he was, he is to this day, still a large part of he, he passed away. He was 18, two years ago, he passed away, but he's sort of the, the basis of the whole thing. And that's where it all started.
0: You – I've had the privilege to went out there with clients and stuff that we have a day off before a show or something, usually at the Alaska State Fair. And last time I was there, I, we went, a bunch of us went to the Byron Glacier, and we love the landscape. The And you, you said it best. It's a, it's gorgeous, the water, the mountains, the snow, everything about it. But then you're kind of like – if you're not prepared, like we had a group of eight people, like you could get killed, whether it's a bear, fall down a rock, get crushed by ice. And it's it has this aesthetic where you're like, it's so pretty here, but there is – it's a it's very dangerous and so for you obviously with the skiing and stuff you had to have some sort of background like make a tourniquet or a shunt or a split and stuff like that but as you jump into the bushing were you also getting ready to kind of start learning and getting how you can adapt to different situations on the trail when you're by yourself and your dogs
1: yeah I mean that's everything in the end is is the adaptability of you Um, and your dogs and and your ability to adjust to to the changing environment around you you know and that's the thing that keeps me going with it keeps the lighter fit the the light light lit as far as like uh, just wanting to get out and do and experience everything that's what Alaska really allows you to do is get out and and every every day I face a new challenge every day there's something that I don't know how to accomplish, or, or I, I get faced with, and I just have to do it. In those early years, yeah, I, I was soaking up everything. I was in the trail. I was learning different things. I was putting myself in situations that I never thought I would ever be in, and <laughs> and learning how to get myself out of them, you know. And then you know, making the move and not only. Getting involved with the mushing and, and I was, I, I did that in town for for several years and got dogs and you're mushing in a town situation, you know, so you're, you're never that far from civilization. And then 12 years ago or 10 years ago, I moved out to this homestead where I was 150 miles from town. And all of a sudden, all of your safeguards went away. There is no backup to anything, you know, like I carry an reach a, a satellite texting device, and that's my connection world if something happens to me if that thing happens to be right there I can send a text if not it's completely up to me to get myself out of that situation and that's the type of thing I thrive on and I think that's a good musher throughout the years
0: now as you you get handed silver and so the guy says this is the start of your mushing career but what's the next step from that like obviously you have to build out the team right or kind of talk me through the process of you getting to having silver and respect you and vice versa, because that partnership has to extend to all the other dogs as well. So is it important for you to establish the the relationship with Silver before you move forward?
1: That's very true. You know, the relationship that we build with these dogs is everything. And when I first started, like I got Silver, he was my first dog. And then I just like collected a bunch of free dogs out of the newspaper to sort of add to that team. And he was still young. And I just was so anxious to get into the sport that I started with the the most hodgepodge group of, you know, free dogs out of the paper. And they're going in every single different direction and they don't have any training and I don't have any training and everyone's just kind of going in circles. And those first couple of years, it's just a crash course. You know, you're learning how dogs operate. And during that time, I was bonding and, and raising silver. And I realized right then and there that the bond that you create from a puppy and then you you raise them together, that is what gets you down the trail. That is the ultimate thing. The loyalty and the trust between you and the dogs is what really is important. And I, I got that instilled in me with Silver. And right then I realized that I just wanted to sort of create a dog that was just like Silver that I could go out and do all these adventures with. And so then I started a breeding program because I was just in love with how basically everything about Silver was I was just I just loved it, you know, and what these people are doing in the sport is you're grabbing the genetics you like, and you're creating the dog that you want to have in your team. And it's a long story. And then I just started breeding dogs and, 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 and realizing what I wanted a dog and realizing that from training from puppies was going to give me the best opportunity to be the, the most successful at it. And then I built up a team over the years of almost all dogs that were out of silver um, my entire kennel now, today, you know, 17 years later, 18 years later is all based off of silver. Um, all the dogs are connected to him and related to him in some way, shape or form, whether he's their great, 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 great grandpa or, 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 or just the dad, I still have some of his sons around. And so that whole thing runs through the genetics and through the bloodline and, and it's that bonding connection um, that really got us to where we are today. And it's just been 20 years of doing that.
0: Now, when it comes to the breeding, it sounds—correct me if I'm wrong—very similar to maybe horse racing, where the owner will try and create the bloodline for the, to be at the top horse, right? So, do you ever have to deal with, or not you specifically, but say, uh, people that compete in that did around a Yukon Quest, where PETA or animal activist groups will reach out and be like, "Oh, you, you can't do this to the dogs," or something like that. Like, how do you kind of work around that? Because obviously, with wild, free, bushy, like you take pride and respect and all this stuff, but are there other people out there that just kind of, you know, you know what i trying to say?
1: Yeah. Yeah. There are people who don't understand and, and all it is is they don't understand, you know, like, and that's why I, it's one of the reasons that free mushing on the social media and on Instagram and Facebook is that I want to spread the word that we're only, we're just allowing these dogs to do what they were born to do. They were born to run. They were born to work. They were born to do this mushing lifestyle and so we're just allowing them to do that and and you know and all the posts I do all this stuff is organic it all is real the dogs live a very very happy life you know they they are doing exactly what they want to do and and anyone who anyone who poses that or, or gives me a hard time I just ask them to to, to to watch to look to follow to follow the social media come visit you're going right. to see that these dogs are the happiest dogs on the face of the planet And they're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing.
0: Now I've seen you post on your social media like they have these little booty type things for conditions like that. I'm assuming because it's really cold or whatever the conditions are. Obviously, you know what you're doing. But what else is done for the dogs? Like when after the middle of a race, you take your break, whatever. How do you? Do they get blankets? Like how do you kind of protect them in that sense?
1: Yep. So we're dog care is the number one during the race. If you're not taking care of your dogs, you're not making it a thousand miles. There's no doubt about that. And, it, you know, I've, I'm going to put about 3,500 miles to 4,000 miles on the dogs and training leading up to the race. So we're very prepared for the conditions for everything the race is going to throw at us. And then like you say, on top of that, we have all this gear and equipment, the technologies have improved over the years, the sport, because we found out that the nutrition and the care of the dogs is what is going to make us the most successful and what's going to be the best for both dogs and the humans. And so, yeah, we, the dog booties play a huge role. We put those on because, you know, imagine running a thousand miles with your bare feet, you know, it's not going to happen. So you know, it's, it's, it's super important to protect their feet with the booties, but they also wear, um, like last night I was on a run, they wear these light running jackets, so when the wind's blowing really hard, you don't, they're, they have the best fur ever, and they could sustain all of these weather, these weather conditions without the help of us. But we're we're trying to take these dogs to the ultimate high we're trying to travel a thousand miles in under eight days or under nine days and so we want to help them in every way to keep those calories to hold all of that energy so they're not just just burning it all up and, and getting depleted so they wear jackets when they're running they wear heavy heavy insulated jackets when they rest they lay on straw and we feed them in their food and their diet is really everything. We feed them the best quality foods they could possibly have. They did burn about 10,000 calories a day on the trail. And we're, we have to constantly replenish that, you know, so we're feeding them the highest quality beef fat, the highest quality beef, the highest quality kibbles you can, that are designed for these long distance races so that we can replenish that energy and keep the dog at their highest uh, athletic ability throughout the entire race.
0: It's just awesome. So one of our listeners that follows the show, Kim was wondering on a day off or when, say you have a weekend off or God forbid, I don't know what your schedule is, but what do you, what do the dogs do? Like what's their kind of downtime, leisure time? Do they, are they always wanting to work? Like, how do you kind of break that up for them to actually make it so that type of thing?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, morale is everything. And so that's what my, my, my uh, job as the coach of the team as the manager of the team is to know when they need the days off when they need to be pushed a little harder so as we prepare for the races i understand what these dogs need and that's one of the best parts about the genetics is like because i've had generations of the same genetics i understand the dogs so well and that genetics carries throughout generations and so you know for me I I run a different schedule kind of every year. I'm always constantly adjusting and changing the way that I train them. But right now it's a a five days on, two days off schedule for the dogs. Um, I'm training 26 dogs. So that means that I have no days off. (laughs) Um, I'm basically running all the time, every day. Most of the days I'm doing two runs a day right now. So I spend upwards of 12 to 17, 18 hours a day on the back of a dog sled. Um, But the key thing is in the time off is that we're having a good time loose. I, 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 everyone likes to be loose. Everyone likes to be free. And so on our days off, a lot of times it's just loose hiking and free running. They get to run around, burst their energy out, ha, you know, not be on the line, not be necessarily working, just be having a good time. And that's the key thing. Morale is everything. And time in the cabin, you know, I'll bring all 26 of my dogs into my little cabin we'll hang out in there and they'll spread so i'll spread out their pros at getting in and just finding their spot on the floor and i can have 26 in a small 12 by 18 cabin um just hanging out you know so on their days off it's not even really days off we're working on all kinds of things on those days i'm going through their body giving them full body massages looking at their feet Going through their feet, rubbing, uh, we have ointments that we put in their feet to improve healing and to prevent any sores or blisters. They can get like what the equivalent in, in our feet are blisters. And so we're constantly doing the care needed to maintain that stuff. So so the dogs are in the best possible ability they could be for the race.
0: Now, when it comes to you, if you're having a bad day mentally or there's an issue at home, or there's something happens that's the dogs obviously with that respect and relationship with you can tell when you're having it off day. So what do you do to help assure the dogs that it's going to be okay? Cause they probably, I'm assuming they know with you're on, right? Like they know with oh. if you're the normal bread. So.
1: Totally. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's one of the best parts about this is that the dogs keep you in check. You know, for me, if I'm having a down day, all I think about, I, I think about the dogs and, and I know that if I continue to have, have these, you know, negative thoughts or get upset or get overwhelmed that it's only feeding into all the dogs. And for me, that is like a slap in the face, wake up. There's no reason to be negative. There's no reason to be down, find the positive, move forward. Attitude is everything. And that's what I I have 50 beans every day, sort of reminding me of that. And so for me, it helps, I would say helps my mental health. I have these checks and balances that if I start to get a little bit Uh, upset about something I have these checks and of these all these dogs that look at me and give me this like hey man we're living the dream here you know just keep keep focused get your stuff together and so it's it's a constant reminder that that uh, dogs are almost always in a good mood so so I I try and feed off of that energy
0: it's crazy too because before I even jumped on it I'm like yeah the the idea of isolation where you're alone but you have 20, 30 other people there with you, probably who are obviously, I think I love dogs more than humans. So I have that <laughs> with you. But so it is something really interesting. The idea of you're not really alone. And it, it's it's super fascinating because if if I'm I'll, if you or I living in the cabin somewhere, 150 miles of civilization, you're gonna be alone. Now, whether you're a writer, you like the isolation, you like the 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 free thinking space, but it would, it would be kind of daunting for someone that wants to jump into this life like you have, where you have to put all this time in and realize that this is what your life is going to be. Totally. And, and, you know, like, and sometimes
1: I'll even pinch myself, you know, I haven't, you're the first person I've talked to in about two weeks face to face. So like I talk to dogs and talk to myself all day long, every day, you know, like, and that's just part of my life. And, and, and like you say, you're never alone people always ask me, how do you live in this remote situation way out in the middle of nowhere with no people? And, you know, usually have some help around, but right now I'm out here alone. And for me, I, like you say, I never feel alone. I've got, I've got dogs and I've got nine loose retired dogs that are just always around. They're always laying on the couch. They're always there when I'm sitting there and and like, if, if I'm sitting there and I'm feeling overwhelmed about something, guess what? All of a sudden I've got two or three or four dogs that come over and stick their face in my face and lick and paw at me. And it's like, okay, refocus and and get back to the task at hand. And so I think that is really, um, how I, how I really survive out here is, is the help from them as well.
0: And so I used to run cross country and I, and I love the idea. What's, I would get so motivated to pass the next person in front of me. Like I'm always chasing to be number one or whatever, um, but for you, obviously you know when you're passing someone on a trail or you do this crazy thing that it's like, "Oh man, I just made up time." do your dogs, when they see you passing another team, do they, are, they, are they aware that what's going on in the sense that they know they're ahead? Like how do, they, how do they put the competition goggles on per se when it comes to this isn't just me and us and Brent out here on the trail practice? Right?
1: Uh, well, one, they feel what I feel. Wow. So if, if, if I'm, if I'm like, if I'm really anxious and excited and like, yeah, let's go get these guys right now, we can do it. They're anxious and excited and fired up. And, and so all of the energy that I'm creating during that race is, is thrown at them And the same way, the other way, like it can work the other way where I'm on the race. If I'm getting kind of tired and having a hard time and slap myself in the face, cause I haven't slept in three days and I can't keep, keep awake. And at the, at the same token, the dogs might just get a burst of energy, and give me that extra burst of energy. Like, Oh man, these guys are right now, I got to get myself woken up and, and get back in the game. So we're constantly during, doing that throughout the race. But as far as the competition thing goes, they know, especially the veterans, they understand completely that we're in a race that we're all against these guys and they get, they see that dog team. And it's like, It's like seeing a squirrel when we're out here all alone, if we're out here all alone, we see a squirrel and I'm going from eight miles an hour to 15 miles an hour like that, you know, and it's just like that in a race. If we're coming up on another competitor, you know, I got butterflies. I'm like, yeah, we're going to pass this guy and they get the same feeling and they start charging hard and we fly by that team. And, you know, and then I try and keep that energy moving. So we just keep keep plowing ahead. So, you know, it is just about that. It's the feels, man. It's all about the, the, the energy between you and the dog team out there. And, and the better that energy... The better you're gonna do in the
0: race. Our one of our listeners, Mary, is wondering in the event of an actual race, if say a dog is injured, whether it's a paw or you obviously something where it's not fit, you can't compete with that dog still. What is the policy yep. procedure in place, or kind of like what do you carry with you out there that kind of help alleviate uh, the dogs if there is an injury per se? Yep.
1: So this is a really good question, a really good big part of, of lognosis racing is um so really the, the big thing is is dog carries everything that once a dog is injured once a dog is hurt in any way we, we do not continue with them it, it, you know sometimes you can like you know massage we use massage techniques so a dog might get a knot in its shoulder and in that case I might stop I might see the dog you know limping a little bit or a little bit off that's another thing is that I'm watching these dogs for thousands of miles so I key in on every little tiny thing that goes wrong with the dogs or is different in their gait And so I'm trying to prevent everything from getting worse. So if I see something small, I'll stop immediately, walk up, test their feet. Is there a problem in their foot? Test their wrist, test their shoulder. And then if there's a, you know, let's just say I find a knot in the shoulder, then I'll sit there and massage that knot out, just like we get knots in our shoulder and you can massage it out and it feels better. We do the same thing on the trail for the dogs out there. Now, if you get to the point where the dog is just, you know, it's got a severe shoulder injury or it's got a severe wrist injury it gets dropped along the way. There's checkpoints along the way in the race. And um, when you come into the checkpoint, if a dog is injured or sick, you drop it off and it gets taken over to care of veterinarians. There's veterinarians at each one of the checkpoints along the way in the race. And then in the Yukon Quest, you have a handler that's following you the whole way. And that dog goes directly to your handler, gets dropped from the race, and you continue on with less dogs. In the in the Yukon Quest, and I did, Rob, we start with 14, and you have to finish with a minimum of six in your team wow. um, and you're clearly you're tr- you, you can drop that many dogs, but um, you can't, you can't go below six and clearly the goal is to finish with as many dogs as you possibly can. Um, but we never want to push them farther or harder. Than they can go dog care and their well being is everything. And so, you know, <clears throat> a, a, a person who takes good care of their dogs has the good training before the race. I finished with almost all my dogs, I finished with 12 to 14 dogs, almost all my races. Um, And it's something I take pride in. It's just because we've done a good job of preparing for the race. And then over the years, you learn all the tricks and trades of of keeping the dogs in in good health throughout the race.
0: Now, when you won the Yukon Quest in 2019 and obviously in 2020, before the 2020 race, in your head mentally, was it more difficult for you to chase being the champion or more difficult to maintain winning it again because I can only imagine it's rare for teams to be that successful, that as steady as you are.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, for me, the biggest thing you can do for, for all for, in all this sport is not care about your competition. That's easier said than done. I right. totally understand that. But like in the end, there's so many variables that if you go into the race thinking you're going to chase this guy or you're going to be chasing that guy or that guy's going to be chasing you you're not going to have a very successful race in this dog racing thing. We come to the race and you kind of got your blinders on to all your competition for the first 500 miles of the race. Cause what you're doing for the first 500 miles of the race is just setting yourself up to race for the second half of the race. Or even some people will say the race even starts 750 miles in. If you can maintain your dogs, maintain your mental health, maintain the dog's mental health, to the point where you can get to the race, which is 500 to 700 miles into the race, then you're, you're set to go because all that muscle memory, all the dogs, they're so well trained that if you can get them through those first 500 miles of the race in good condition, then you're ready to rock and roll. So for me, you know, in the end, I'm totally, just zero focused on a hundred focused on, on me and my race and my dogs and trying not to let the clutter of everything else, um, get in there until you get right down to the nitty gritty of that last. I've
0: had John doors on this program a bunch and he's a former, uh, law enforcement, but wild game warden, but he competes in the Baja 500, the 1000 stuff in Mexico, where we talked about some of the stuff we're talking about now, where it's the the mental, the physical, whatever. But one of the coolest things, I kind of get the sense from you, is that if you're in the middle of a race and you see someone get hurt or another dog have issues or another slatter or busher in trouble, your first instinct is to help that person or at least do what you can. And I think that's something that a lot of people in this day and age kind of, yeah, it'd be great to win first place, crush the competition. But would you feel good about yourself if you passed someone who was in genuine trouble or in a bad situation? Like for you, how is it? How important is that for you to actually help someone that might need help in, in a life-and-death situation?
1: It's huge. And it's one of the things that sets, I think, dog mushing and the sport of dog mushing apart from some of the other competitive sports that are very similar to it is we're out there together. It's a survival aspect, you know? And so, and I will say my first, you know, before I became a competitive musher, my first five to 10 years of racing was totally around that whole survival thing. I, my reputation was that the harder the weather, the harder the conditions, the better my team is going to do. And so we found ourselves in a lot of those rescuing and safety type situations where silver is no silver was known for saving people on the trail. We we we've come a lot, across a lot of people that were in peril back in the days before we were running in the front of the pack. And and when you're faced with those 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 situations, you don't even think twice. Your race is secondary to helping these people in these harsh conditions. I mean, I have been in life and death situations during races with other competitors, when we have worked together to get through a certain situation, to get over a mountain that, you know, there's a bad storm on the mountain and, and and you know, you come across somebody who's just been bunkered down for hours and hours and hours, cause they can't go forward. And then you kind of work together to get yourselves out of that situation. And to me, that's one of the, that's the basis. That's one of the reasons I loved the sport from the beginning that camaraderie that you have with these ultimate competitors, you know, we train all season long to beat everybody else around us. But when, when, when push comes to shove out there on the trail, every one of us are going to help each other get down the trail and and through, through the, through the peril. Um, I I think it's something that's very unique in, in mushing.
0: I'm always curious and I wish there was more shows out there that when you guys are like all your cup, all the competitors are like the little hut on a break or whatever, and just sit by a wood stove. Like it, it just seems like it reminds me of like my grandfather growing up as a kid with all the other Italians in the street They were playing bocce or something where just the war stories you could talk about. But it's kind of cool that you actually you all feel that way where yeah, you're competitors, but end of the day, we can still talk shop and look out for one another. I think that again, that's something that's missing a lot of sports today.
1: Yeah, there's there's no there's no doubt that sitting in those cabins in remote places and everyone hasn't slept in three or four days, you know, and <laughs> And you're sitting next to your he's your buddy, right? But you're also wondering what's he gonna do next? What's his next move? How is his dogs looking? But you're like, hey man, having a good race. Everybody's going good. Your dogs looking good. You know, in the back of your head, you're like, what's his, Where's the chink in his armor? You know where? But you're but you're friendly the whole time but you're also always trying to gain that extra edge, you know? And so there's some really fun dynamic about that, especially we all have to find the humor in it because like I said, we haven't slept a lot of times we haven't slept in days when we're out there interacting with each other. And so you're, you're kind of playing the, the the best friend slash enemy com- competitor all at the same time. And so the mental games are are also uh, very, very fun. And, and I think and, that's uh, amazing because obviously
0: the, the the physicality of it, but I was watching this 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 famous clip, this this two guys back in the day that I did around, where they were always going back and forth to each other in one, two, three, whatever that. And they they would basically talk to each other all night. Whoever fell asleep first, the other person would head back out. And it's just like the weird, crazy mind games where it's like it, it, it is kind of mind-blowing that you... So after a race, how, late, how much time do you take between kind of resetting yourself? Because you would be tired physically, mentally. Your dog's yeah. like is there ever a downtime for you? Um, I mean, a little bit.
1: Like, I mean, it depends. Like, every year for a lot of years, I ran both the 1,000-mile quest and the Iditarod. And there was generally about two weeks between those races. Um, the dogs are ready to go in about three or four days. <laughs> the human needs a little bit more time to sort of reset and, re, re, you know, reboot. But, you know, your body is, like, I don't – I get about four hours of sleep a day all the time. Like, that is kind of where my body – can function. And so that really lends well to the racing scenario because basically you're going 10 hours on four hours off, 10 hours on four hours off. It's kind of a rough schedule that I take out there. And so it's, you know, it's one of those things where you're just constantly, um, keeping yourself motivated to go. And, and the bottom line is this is my my passion. I I love to do this. And everyone asks, where do you find the energy to do this? Where do you find it's just there. Like I go to bed, you know, like last night I went to bed It. I got done with a run, got, got, got done, fed all the dogs, got done at about two o'clock in the morning and I get to bed and I'm like, I'm already like, oh, I got to wait three hours before I can get back up and feed the dogs and get ready to get back out there. Like, that's just the mentality in my brain. It's like, I just love to do this so much that, that I'm able to just find that extra energy. And, and, um, and then, my lifestyle really lends in to, to what it takes to to be able to, to survive the uh, the sleep deprivation.
0: Now, obviously I'm familiar with I did around. I think people are, especially if they follow people like yourself. Uh, but is it are you able to get sponsors for yourself, your team, and stuff like or is this something where like what's it gonna take for this to become mainstream? Like, why isn't this on ESPN two at the very least over Right. Ballroom dancing or a cordhole during the pandemic. Because I think I could have enjoyed a busher and his dogs more than watching people throw sandbags around.
1: <laughs> totally. You know, I think I think that um, you know, I, I hope that we get there. I, I think that's the the goal behind mushing and these organizations with the Yukon quest and I did it out is to get more people involved and get it more mainstream. I think that because of the dogs and and the the, the like you said earlier, the opposition that people are just totally ignorant to the fact that we're doing exactly what we love and what these dogs love to do we got to kind of break through that barrier we're always going to have the PETA people breathing down our our backs but the bottom line is they come to these races and they can have their little picket lines and whatever but like you can't argue with the show the show is there the dogs love what they're doing it's it's very clear there is no there's no arguing that so i think we're getting there i think that the more mushers do that, what I'm doing, we get the outreach, we get people involved in our lives, we get people to, to see that we are really doing for these dogs what they deserve and what they love. Um, so I, I hope that we continue to build it. We've had a few kind of rough years here because PETA is going after the races and, and you know, going after the financial side of the sport. And so they're kind of having to pivot a little bit and go away from big corporate sponsors and go more grassroots just because the corporate people can't touch it because they're getting slapped in the face by PETA for, for doing anything with us. So, but on the, on the, on the, on the same token, so many people have seen the light and and understand, you know, how, what we're doing and that we're promoting an amazing sport and something that these dogs love that I feel like we're, we're social, more, more, more social media gets into it, the more the sport will, will hopefully grow and, I'm doing six races this season. So I have a huge schedule ahead of me. I'm going to be racing basically nonstop all of January, February and into March. And so um, it's, it's, it's go, go, go for me from here on out.
0: Now, obviously your attitude, you, when you go out and talk to people, motivational uh, speaking and stuff and people, everything you're saying now, yes, it pertains to bushing in your sport. But if you look, if you look at the bigger picture, this pertains to I don't care what job you have. You could be a chef, a teacher, a, a single parent, uh, a cop, wherever you are. This this mindset of being super positive. And so, when your when your grandfather told you never give up, you took that to heart. And so, is it disheartening for you though when you see people you talk in front of? They're like they don't get that or don't see that what you saw because we all have this limitless, unlimited potential. And for me. I get upset when people don't use that potential or you just kind of sit back and go, man, you got everything right now. You got everything. Yeah. And you're not doing it about it. So how does that kind of mess with you a little bit when you you talk to people that just don't get that idea? Yeah. You know, I think
1: that, um, well, I try and be like I am right now. I am I, I'm, I'm exuding positivity at all times. And, and, you know, to be honest with you, I have very, had very rarely has ever, gotten in my face after I've done a talk or I've, I've I've talked about this because it's hard to argue with the fact that we're doing what these dogs love and I'm doing what I love. And I have, you know, keep a positive attitude is it's an understatement, you know, like, like you say, this is life lessons, all of, all the things that I'm doing. It's just, just, I'm just putting it into the Alaska wilderness. This can be put into any kind of lifestyle, any kind of sport, any kind of job anywhere out there. And so I guess that, you know, the naysayers, they just don't. I just don't even listen. I mean, I I do what they say. I try and I, I don't even argue. All I do is preach what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. I have a hundred percent confidence. What I'm doing is the best possible thing for these dogs, and the best possible life they could possibly be living. And as long as I know that, then everything I do is for them. I mean, I I'm I'm forty-two years old, and my entire life is devoted to sled dogs. I literally live a life that. <laughs> I don't think about anything else all day long, except for sled dogs. And I'm feel very, very fortunate about that. So in the end, like I just, I, I'm, I'm so confident in what I'm doing that that I don't let any of that get in my way.
0: And I, obviously my job with security and protecting people, I, I, I'm willing to die for my job because I love it. I live it, breathe it. But when I talk to you, I mean, obviously we both have to sacrifice stuff, but I could go to the new movie theater and check out a new movie, or I could go somewhere and get that food that I need, or go to Target and grab something I want, just for selfish reasons. You can't yeah. do that. And so I, as someone that always finds motivation to others, I can look at you and be like, well, maybe I'm not sacrificing enough in what I believe in or want to do. Is that a fair thing to think? Because obviously our careers are much different, but like we right. said before, if you really believe and want to accomplish something and you're limited time on earth, you have to be willing to sacrifice a lot of stuff for it. So I'm kind of looking at you going, man, maybe I, maybe I could work, stay up an extra hour later or something like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I hope that I can get to people like that. I I, I know that I'm, I I can confidently say that I'm living the dream. It's cliche as can be, but the bottom line is that I'm doing what I want to do every single day. And I don't think you can, I don't want anyone to gauge what the effort that I'm putting in against the effort that they're putting into their life or, or their goals or their aspirations. But all I can say is that I give a hundred percent to my lifestyle, to my life, to my dogs, to my goals and dreams every single day. And I've, I've created a life here that I um, love thoroughly that takes every bit of my energy, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. There is no day off. There is no board. There is no, what I never go to bed thinking, what am I going to do tomorrow? Or even wake up. What am I going to do today? Like my to-do list is, is 3000 things long, you know? But the thing is, is that I've created all of that. I've made this life for myself. And so Even when I get bogged down or I get, you know, overwhelmed with everything going on, I just have to sit back and go, look where I'm at. Look what I'm doing. There is nothing right now that should be slowing me down. Just keep plugging along. And so I think everybody should just take it all with a grain of salt and just give everything you've got to what you've got going on and and what you, what your passions are. Once you find that passion, I don't think it's that hard. Like you say, you found it with yourself it's not you're willing to die for what you're doing and 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 same thing for me it's it's just one of those things we're we're fortunate people and that we found our passions and i and all i can say is that people just find your passions like i think that is what drives me every day and and makes it so that i don't even have to think twice about the effort and and all the energy i put into this lifestyle
0: right so if people obviously think it was your wild and free bushing uh website about information but more about information about yourself the dogs racing but if people and listen to this podcast episode. We're going to be like, I want to learn more about this. It's not biased, but where could someone go? They just be like, I want to learn about the history, this type of stuff. Like what resources out there would you recommend people go check out about the Yukon Quest, the Iditarod, or just Bushy in general?
1: Yep. Well, both the Iditarod and the Yukon Quest websites are full of good information. Iditarod uh, has an insider program where they do a lot of – they'll go out and video uh, – make videos of mushers throughout the season. So you get a little behind the scenes look at other kennels because that's what it's all about. It's about the diversity, the people like myself and all the different diverse people, mushers of all different walks of life. I mean, there's people that are 18 year old just out of high school that are doing this and and want to create a life out of this. And there's 75 year old, old guys that are still doing it. And there's everything in between. And so learning the mushers and, and understanding what drives them And learning their kennels, I think, is what will get people the most connection to the sport. So go to the websites, be able to hook into other websites like mine, mywildandfreealaska.com website. Almost all the mushers have websites, so I would get on and look for their personal websites because that's going to give you the insight to what you're watching and what you're looking at because the more you know the characters, I mean, it's like why everyone likes basketball players. They like the players. They get in touch with the players. They get connected to certain players with mushing you can do that same thing you can get connected to different mushers that you feel like you're 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 like or you you aspire to be like or or you just like certain you know some people there's a lot of mushers that live in the city and 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 mush dogs in the city and go and compete in these races and then there's a lot of mushers like me who live in the middle of nowhere so we're all characters and i think getting to know the characters uh, in 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 the, that are playing in this is what's going to get you the most involved in the sport so checking out people's websites i think is is your uh, and going to the what you conquest and i did a lot of websites is where you'll find that
0: i love it so you mentioned you got six races coming up in 2022 how far out do you kind of plan or decide like what you're going to do
1: uh, well i started my planning you know after the last race last year but I, this summer I decided last year because last two years have been really weird with COVID and stuff. We had some of the races were canceled and we've had a sort of uh, a modified races. We still have a modified quest. We're still not crossing the border during the race. And so um, basically I look at where the races are in, in August and September, and I sort of make my game plan of what races are going to happen. And this year I'm training 26 dogs um, for my main race team. And so it's a lot of dogs. And so basically what I'm doing is I'm racing one team one weekend and then I'm going to come home and I swap the team and I race the next weekend with the other team and I come home and I swap the team and I so I'm going to race every dog in my in my team in two to three races and then that'll basically allow me to figure out what the best dogs are not only individually but as a team and then I can take the top 14 dogs in my kennel to the Iditarod in March that's kind of the ultimate goal is these other races are more they're, they're competitive races. I'm trying to win every race that I enter, but these other ones are more of a build-up sort of sorting out the dog team, figuring out what veterans are are still got the got the got the juice to do it, figuring out what young ones are gonna are gonna rise to the challenge and join the team and then meshing that together to create the best team that I can for Iditarod. So um, the plan, you know, is evolving at all times. Like right now I'm just in training miles. We're, we're, we're putting on, you know, three, 400 miles a week right now or more. And, uh, and I'm just learning how the team meshes together. I've got a bunch of young dogs that I'm bringing into the team. And so it's just, uh, I'm just a coach and it's, a, it's so much fun to, to arrange and, and figure out the best combination so that we take the best team to the race.
0: Is your gear or, like, sled material, is that stuff ever changing? Like, when somebody releases a new product, do you get to try it out, or are you just so set in your ways with what you have? Like, why would you change something up?
1: Always, always evolving. The sport has been changing and evolving since it started. Innovators have been along the way. The sleds, the gear, the technology has all changed. It's still changing. Everybody – like, I've been trying new things every year, different types of connections with the lines – to streamline things snaps freeze you know the snaps that we hook the dogs to the line snaps freeze. so i got rid of snaps and created this plastic toggle that just there's friction fits together so that when it's frozen you can just easily take it apart and so we're constantly innovating those things to streamline because every second wasted on the trail is a second we're we're that much slower on the on the race and so innovation is huge in the sport and then also the the biggest thing has been the 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 dog care and the nutrition and the the, what the dogs I mean we're figuring out what fuels these dogs there's lots of veterinarian and studies that have been done over the years on these sled dogs when they're at their peak performances and so we've really dialed in their nutrition um, but every every dog is different and so you're constantly evolving and adjusting and I feed I'm feeding 26 of my race dogs every single one gets a different portion of kibble different portion of meat different portion of fat every single day so I'm I'm, I'm going out that dog needs this amount every day. This dog needs that amount. And I'm constantly evolving and changing. And as the conditions change, I'm having to change and evolve with that. So, um, it's a, it's a constant learning curve and that's something that keeps me involved even more is that I'm learning something new every day. There's no doubt that I learn something new every single day with these dogs. And to me, that's what keeps me going and, and, and keeps me excited about all this. And, and the more I can evolve and get better, the faster we'll be on the trail.
0: So before I let you go, obviously tell people kind of what social media, you're on, how they can find you. Um, and I think it's important too that people reach out to you if they have questions or other stuff they want to talk about. I think talking to you has been really not only informative, but super cool because I finally got to talk to someone that is in a, that does something for a living that I've always admired and loved as a kid. Um, so if they want to reach out to you, what social media can they hit you up with? Yeah, so we're, I'm on so, um, um,
1: uh, Facebook at Wild and Free Mushing. You can just go to Wild and Free Mushing and I've got a huge following. I post multiple times a day just dogs. It's all about dogs. And, and, and you'll, get, you'll fall in love with my dogs and, and you'll, you'll want to come back every day and check out who's, who's doing what and who's leading. Instagram is Be Wild Free. Um, uh, same deal on there. It's all connected. And in my website, wildandfreealaska.com. Um, updates all the time on the team and the plan going forward. Um, and yeah, I mean, one other thing I want to say is that I'm out here alone and I'm doing this, you know, on the ground by myself right now, but I have a huge team. It's just like any sport, any, any, any team aspect. I have a huge team all the way down to, you know, to, to people that don't even associate with me. They're just donating to my kennel. They're sponsoring a dog. I have, of what we talked briefly about sponsors earlier. I have a lot of gear sponsors, people that support me and help me make this happen. So this is by no means a one-man operation. This is a, a, the 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 uh, saying that it takes a village is something that's more relevant to to mushing than anything on the planet. We're out there alone with our dogs, but it takes a whole team to get to that finish line and to get to that start line. And so I'm very fortunate that I have them backing me and in that social media. All those followers and fans are also a big part of uh, a big part of my 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 uh, career and, and my life out here.
0: I love it, uh, Brent. This has been awesome. Thank you for your time, and uh, we look forward to seeing you uh, you and your team compete.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot. Appreciate you having me, John. Have to come up and take a visit sometime and uh, and take a ride on a dog sled, man. <laughs> I will.
0: Thank you, sir. Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Let's get up, John. If you like what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel, find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, t-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week.